0: We are doing a series as we launch the Quincy campus that is really a launch series, as though we were just beginning the journey again. In fact, today is pretty much the sermon I preached the very first time we worshipped at the journey, our very first service eight years ago. And hopefully, for those of you that have been a part of the church for a while, you'll recognize as I share some of our core Ideas about what it means to be followers of Jesus together. And uh, then as we talk in the weeks to come about the three priorities of that life in Jesus, hopefully you'll recognize that this, these ideas have been interspersed. They'll, they'll be recognizable to, to hopefully those of you that have been here for a while. So you'll see it by way of review. And for others of you, it's the first time you've had a chance to really hear some of the core passions and ideas about spirituality and following Christ that have driven us to where we are today. And so uh, for for both sides, let's embrace this. This is what what we call sort of getting back to the basics of the journey. And it's important that we do that. How many of you know the the famous coach from UCLA, John Wooden? Anybody? Mostly the older folks here, and that's understandable because uh, he presided over one of the great sports dynasties in the 1960s and 70s when, the, when UCLA, in 12 years, won 10 national championships. It's remarkable. Has, had never been done before that and hasn't been done since. And uh, one of the things Wooden was famous for, of course, he had some of the greatest players in the world. He put out people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton. More, more, Boston people know Bill Walton as the good guy and Kareem as the guy from L.A., the, the evil empire out there. But both great players, tremendous players. So he had those, but he was famous for treating the beginning of training camp as though they had never played the game before. He would stand up at the beginning of their first meeting and hold the basketball and say, gentlemen, this is a basketball. And and then he'd proceed to go through the first few days basic training like he was teaching people that had never played the game before. And they were the greatest players to come out of the high school ranks. They were the best in the nation. And yet he taught them the basics, dribbling, rebounding, running. He had one whole session where he taught his players how to put their shoes on and tie them properly. And they knew how to do that, but the message was clear. We're going to win because we're going to be the best team when it comes to the foundational things of the game. So we all need that. And so that's what we're going to do together. Today, I'm actually going to tell you the original uh, reason for our name, The Journey Community Church. What is in a name? Now, now Pastor Paul has made it very clear far too often than I'd, than I'd like him to that he wasn't crazy about the name of The Journey when he first came, but he's, he's gotten around, he's come around in understanding it. Uh, I've always appreciated it. Obviously, I, I came up with it. <laughs> but there's a reason for it. Names are important. Uh, nowadays, there are lots of churches around the United States that call themselves the Journey. There were a handful when we got started. Now I didn't, I didn't realize it would become so popular in and, and, and other places. So people will come and ask Are you, like, all the Journey churches, are they part of, like, a denomination or something? And the answer is no, at least not for us. We're, we're not aligned with anybody. I, I, I counter that by saying there's a whole lot more churches named First Baptist in the world. You know, first United Presbyterian, first, first, first. Um, Vitt and I were in uh, Newark years ago, and we were at a stoplight, and this church bus came coming through the, the, the intersection, and they had hand painted the name of their church on the side of the bus, Rapture Preparation Center. Kind of knew where that church stood on some critical doctrines, right off. <laughs> well, today we're going to understand why we chose this name, The Journey. It has everything to do with our understanding of how jesus calls us into followership when he said come follow and so we're going to be in matthew chapter 3 i invite you to turn there with me it's page 683 in your pew bibles Uh, turn it open it up we're going to look at these six verses starting at verse 17. Let me give you the background to where we are. We're early in the Gospel of Matthew. Up until this point, Matthew has spent time giving us some of the details about Jesus' birth and his, his lineage. And then uh, time leaps forward, and we see Jesus just before he begins his public ministry. Two events most significant in that those weeks. He's baptized by John the Baptist, And then you may have heard the story of how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. There's this sort of royal rumble in the wilderness between Satan and Jesus. And um, Jesus commits himself and and, uh, moves forward out of that into his ministry. And now what we are about to read is Matthew's description of the very first things Jesus said and did as he began his ministry. Now, they're important because actually it's a foreshadowing of Jesus' entire message. The, the the theme of everything Jesus would preach is introduced here. And also how he invited people into life with him is seen here as well. So there's a lot to learn for us today. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, among the people so as we begin this we want to first look at the message the core message that Jesus preached and I want you to see two phrases in this first verse 17 where his core message and all the gospel writers affirm this is essentially the heart of his message repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near and then down at verse 23 he went about through all the villages preaching proclaiming the good news of the kingdom now how many of you know the word that we use to describe the the term good news what's the what's the key word that we use the gospel right and that's central to who we are as people the gospel the core message of the church and when you begin to think about what the gospel is what how would you articulate it most of us would uh, articulate it the way paul did into the church of Corinth here's the gospel that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures he was buried and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures and we might add to that the teachings uh, in in the book of Acts the Apostles as they evangelized you know believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and all these things are true they are the the facts the story at the core of the gospel But here's the thing I want you to understand. At some point in time, we took, maybe this is an American thing, maybe it grows out of the the Great Awakening preachers who really came to emphasize personal conversion, which I think is is an important truth for us to embrace. But at some point in time, we distilled the gospel down to a bare minimum set of facts to help people get into heaven when they die. in fact we taught my generation was taught by a very well-known evangelism training thing to actually begin a conversation with somebody with that question if you died and you're standing before heaven and god says to you why should i let you in what do you answer now thinking about your eternal destiny is a great reason to get right with god but That's how we think of the gospel. It's about getting ready for heaven. It's about the the basic facts. But yet what we see in the gospel is that Jesus preached what he called the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. I want to suggest that we have turned the gospel into the gospel of heaven. And in doing that, we've limited its focus. Jesus preached a different context of the gospel around the kingdom of God. I've told this story before, but it's appropriate right now. I want to I go to a famous theological treatise by the name of Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. <laughs> a few other theologians here, like-minded as I am. Uh, there's a scene in this, uh, this farcical telling of uh, King Arthur and his quest for the Grail um, where they come to the bridge of death or the bridge of doom. Yeah, you know, it. and the gatekeeper's there, and he says, I'm going to ask you three questions, and if you get the questions right, you can pass safely. If you get them wrong, you're going to be cast into the uh, abyss of despair or whatever it was called. There you go. (laughs) There is a true theological mind right there. The gorge of eternal peril. That's so good. Thank you. So the first one ste- steps up and the gatekeeper says, what's your name? Question one, gives, tells him his name. What's your quest? Tells him his quest. Third question, what's your favorite color? <laughs> Blue. Right. You can pass through. Second person, now he's, he's more confident now, so he steps right up. The fear's gone. What's your name? Tells him his name. What's your quest? I quest for the grail. Third question, what's the capital of Assyria? <laughs> I don't know. Ah! Cast down into the gorge of eternal peril. Well, now the third guy, he's, he's more sober. He steps up. He's nervous. What's your name? Tells him his name. What's your quest? Tells him his quest. Third question, what's your favorite color? He's so nervous, he says, red. No, blue. Eyes! Ah, cast down into the gorge of eternal peril. Now King Arthur steps up. What's your name? I am Arthur of the Brits. What's your quest? I quest for the Holy Grail. Then the third question for him is this running gag that goes through the entire movie. What's the airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? You have to watch the movie to understand why that's funny. (laughs) So King Arthur says, well, that depends. Is it a European or an African swallow? The gatekeeper says, I don't know. (laughs) Ah! The gatekeeper is cast into the gorge of eternal peril. You get my point. For some of us, that's what the gospel's all about having the right information when we get so we get into heaven when we die. We 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 sign we say the sinner's prayer, we're good to go. We're good to go to heaven. That wasn't Jesus' idea of the gospel. Jesus was certainly focused on the hereafter, but his primary message was about the here and now. And that is a huge difference. He went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom when he sent out the 70 to preach in his name what did he tell them to talk about you know the kingdom of god when he died was risen again and spent his final 40 days with his followers preparing them every word mattering preparing them for this great mission when he departed what does it say he talked about you know say it yeah that's the right answer Thank you, one person. (laughs) Yeah, the kingdom. When the disciples began their ministry in the book of Acts, all throughout the book of Acts, you hear them talking and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Somewhere we have misplaced it. We've taken the gospel out of that context because the kingdom of God is a present reality. Jesus' message was essentially this the kingdom of God has come near to you and you can be a part of it that's what it was about that's very powerful now we've taught about the kingdom a lot you know that 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 drives our thinking about our mission when you think about the kingdom of God instead of just getting people ready for heaven you understand that the gospel is both message and mission Because you are proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God. Ask me right now, where is the kingdom of God? I can tell you one place it is, right here. I have bowed my knee to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. He rules in this place. This is where the kingdom is. The Greek word for kingdom is the word basileia. In English, when we think of the kingdom of God, we think of a geographical region, something with boundaries, The United Kingdom, for instance, is a smaller kingdom than it was 100 years ago because they've they've lost territory. So we think of the kingdom in that sort of geographical sense. That is not the concept of the kingdom of God in Scripture. The term basileia is not about a region over which you reign. The term basileia is about the act of ruling. And that's why we can say, even though this world... (laughs) is still devoted and given over to the, to the great deceiver himself. We can say Jesus Christ rules. We can say the kingdom is now because the kingdom is here. And we know that the Father has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That, right now that's true. Christ reigns. The kingdom is. Do you understand that? This is important that we understand that. Jesus invites us to something now that we are to be a part of. That's critical that you understand that. So if you're the type that kind of went through the religious motions, you were maybe baptized as an infant and then confirmed, or maybe you weren't in that kind of a church, more like our church, and you uh, kind of acknowledged the gospel at some point, and all of it was about just making sure you're good for heaven. And there's something radically missing in your spiritual experience now. It's called the kingdom of God. It's a wonderful place to live. And Jesus has made it possible for us to be in it right now. Life with God, life under God's authority and rule. Life lived for his eternal purposes. It's an amazing place. Jesus says it's available. Now, how did Jesus enfold people into the kingdom? This is pretty critical because it really shapes our idea of how we enfold people into community here at The Journey. And it's important that I establish right now that Jesus did nowhere sat down with his disciples. There's no place ever that says Jesus sat down with his disciples and said, okay, listen now. I'm going to give you the, the basic Minimum information you need to get to heaven when you die. And then when I leave, you tell other people that basic information. There's no place that Jesus ever does that. It's not saying it's not important to tell the story of Jesus. Of course, that's at the heart of everything. But how did Jesus enfold people into it? Here is the key. He didn't come to establish a new world religion, He didn't come to establish a church membership role. The way Jesus enfolded people into the kingdom was to invite them into, are you ready? A journey. And that's what we see in this verse. Let's say it together. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We can break this down very simply into four aspects of Jesus' invitation into followership. The first is that word, come. It feels simple, but what I want to do is contrast Jesus' invitation into ways that as time has gone by, we have synthesized our idea of unfolding and making converts and kind of you know, bringing the gospel. I want to contrast those two things. And one way I want to contrast this is my recollection as a boy, uh, when I got really serious about, you know, my life and I wanted to know Jesus, I was very young, I think I was six or seven, when I prayed what we refer to as the sinner's prayer you know, the essential facts that you have to confess in order to know you're going to heaven when you die, you know, and ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And the way I remember it being described to me was you need to invite Jesus to come into your heart, come into your life. I was young enough when I first heard that, that I didn't get that. Was there some kind of compartment in here that Jesus moves in? And then as I grew, I realized it was symbolic about my life. But the core idea was I have this life, and many of us, when we encounter Jesus, we have our needs, we have our disappointments, we have our failures, we have our hopes, and at some point, we say something's missing here, what's missing, and we go, Jesus, Jesus is what's missing, and we say, Jesus, would you come into all this? And of course, he he does, nothing wrong with that. But as long as you only think of your life in Christ as you're inviting him into your life, you're missing Christ's primary invitation. Here's the key. Jesus does not ask you to invite him into your life. Jesus invites you into his life. Now you may be thinking, well, Tom, wait a minute here. I know there's a verse in the Bible. You forgot about Matthew 3. Maybe you forgot about Revelation 3 too. Where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open to me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. What do you mean Jesus doesn't ask us to invite him into our life? Okay, so here's the thing. That wasn't written to people. That wasn't written to a person. Who is Jesus speaking to in Revelation 3? A church. A church. The church at Laodicea, the first church rooted in the health and wealth gospel, I would argue. They were all about their success strategy and so joyful and assuming that that meant God's blessing, they had no need of Jesus to really be there. So they had pushed them out of their experience and didn't even know it. So Jesus is patiently saying to His church, make me the heart of your, your experience again. See? Now, of course, we need to invite Christ in. But here's the problem. When you're only focused on that, when you don't get that He's inviting you into His life, the problem with that is that your whole experience is rooted in your pre-established ideas of life. And the only thing you're looking for Jesus to work on are the needs and priorities that you've already established. And here's another problem. When you invite Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe... By whom and for whom all things were made. When you invite him into your life, you know what? He doesn't fit. (laughs) He's bigger than that. So you will never experience all that God has for you as, as Christ's follower as long as you're only seeing it as you opening up to Jesus. Jesus didn't see it that way. He invites us into his life. And here's the great thing about that. That's infinite space. That's miraculous space. That's eternal space. And that opens up the possibilities for our life in a way that uh, your limited view can't even imagine or vision. Are you holding Jesus back in your life because you've predetermined the boundaries of that life and asked Him to cooperate with those? Or do you see yourself as following Jesus into a life bigger than yours could ever be without Him? come follow me the greek words there literally mean follow from behind or we might say in his footsteps we like to emphasize that teaching in scripture about jesus as our friend think of ourselves as in partnership with us when i when i was coming of age in my high school years Um, it was the late 60s early 70s there were hippies around I wanted to be one but I was uh, I'm a recovering fundamentalist so we were you know you know Footloose I was on the I was on the side that was against dancing you know in in the movie Footloose yeah but I wanted to be a hippie and I, I was really drawn to those songs about Jesus Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Anybody know it? Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. Take a look at yourself and you can look at others differently. Put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. My dad hated that song. because, you know, my, my, my preacher dad hated that song. I kind of liked it because uh, you know, Jesus was out of touch for me, out of reach. I like the idea of, of uh, him being in relationship, and he does call us his friends. Nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, Jesus wants to be clear that when it comes to this journey, he's in the lead. He's the one who knows the path to the life that he's called you to. And if you're going to follow him, you need to be willing to get in line behind him and let him lead. Now, the, the good part of that is And I want to say this to you. Jesus knows the path you're going to take as his follower. And no matter what you're going through or have gone through, Jesus is never surprised by it. He's never caught off guard by it. You may be going through a really difficult season. I want you to know if you're a follower of Jesus, he was ready for it. He's there with you in it. Sometimes following Jesus requires understanding the deep nature of the shepherd's psalm. When the psalmist wrote, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because God provides an exit sign, but because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When I allow myself to get in line behind Jesus, Sometimes it takes me to places that if I were there alone, I would not survive. But because Jesus is leading, I'll find the way through. He will, he will, he will take me through it. But what that also means is there's times that you want to go this way. <laughs> You've got your plans. And Jesus says, no, this is my way. Walk in it. And that's when we need to recognize that this journey is a journey in the kingdom And this Jesus is one to whom we bow a knee and follow His lead. Come, follow me. I like this third phrase. And I will make you. The original language there, that word make, has a very intentional tone to it. And it bears this idea of Being committed to bringing that making into completion, you can hear the 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 words of the uh, epistle that says, "I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion." It's that type of thing that Jesus is saying. Christ is saying, "You come, you leave behind the life that is limited to your failures and your weaknesses and your own dreams." And your aspirations and your pride and you leave that behind and and enter into life with me as we go I'm going to change you I'm going to take all of the creative force by which I made the universe and I'm going to bring all that to bear in your life and when I'm done you're going to be a new creation that's what we're called because he brings change in the journey and this is such a critical part of understanding followership as we see it as a church you see traditionally churches have said you can belong if you believe the right stuff if you're willing to on the front end of our relationship agree with us about everything that we believe then we'll let you belong that's not how Jesus enfolded people into life with him. Jesus invited them into relationship, and it was in that relationship that they became believers. The disciples were a messy bunch. I mean, it, was, it was pretty miserable, actually. I think one of the reasons Jesus went off to pray by himself so often is because he was just sick and tired of their, their arguing. I can Get away from these guys. I need a break. I'm going to be with my father for a while. They were messy, They didn't know who Jesus was. They debated it all the time. What does it mean that he's king? They had their own ideas of that. How often do you read when they watched a miracle, their reaction is, who is this man? (laughs) They were already following him. They were already called his disciples. They still hadn't figured it out. And then a year and a half into that journey, literally 13 chapters, no, 12 chapters, (laughs) Uh, it's still coming back to bite me isn't it 12 chapters later peter is the first to profess jesus as savior and lord year and a half into relationship with him this is how god intended spiritual discovery to take place in spiritual community see That's who we want to be. We want to be a place where people, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey, can say, I belong there. I'm loved there. I'm experiencing Jesus there in people whose lives are being transformed by him. I know I I need to be here, but I also know I'm welcome here. I belong. And I want to say that to every one of you. Whether we are your very first experience of hearing Jesus Christ spoken about except as a swear word, or if you've, you've been one who once had faith and college years ripped that faith away from you and you're just in that stage of wondering if you can find it again, or if you have failed so often in your life spiritually, your choices have been so bad, you're wondering if you can ever find restoration, or if you are one of the great saints in the history of the church, and there's some of them here. Some of them are here. God's done a great work in your life. I want to say two things. Every one of you have a next step that God wants you to take in your journey. None of us are a finished product. And secondly, no matter where you are right now, you belong here. That's who we want the journey to be. We want it to be a place where you feel safe to be here where you are and be open to God saying to you, come on, let's take the next step together. And I believe with all my heart that when we become that kind of a place, and I believe we are that kind of a place, those who seek God with all their heart find him. But it belongs in the journey. Does that make sense to you? We want to be that kind of place. You know what that means? This place is gonna be messy. We're going to be messy. You're going to be hurt by people that are sitting around you who don't understand you, don't understand your background, don't understand your ethnicity, your experience, your story. They're wrestling with their own things that God's got to do in their life. They're on their journey. That's why we coined the idea of this being a grace-saturated community, not just because we think that's cool, because we desperately need it. To be the community of Christ on a journey of transformation together. All of us on our own ark. Yeah. One person broke out of Presbyterianism right there. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. I'm not looking for applause, it's okay. I know if Ron was up here, you'd all be hooting and hollering. I know, I know. He, gets, he draws that out of us. That's who we want to be. And then that, that last phrase, fishers of men. Now, we have typically used this, and it's appropriate to say that when we come to Jesus, He makes us part of the great mission of helping people come to Jesus. We're all part of that. But at the same time, when we use it that way, we give the idea that we're all cookie cutters, that we all have a, a very specific thing we all have to be Billy Grants. we all have to be evangelists and I don't think that's how it works I think evangelism happens in community where we enfold people into the body they experience Jesus and those that are gifted of telling the story are used of God and those that just show it in love are, are used we've so individualized our journey that we we act like everybody's gotta take a class on soul winning and know how to exactly give everybody the basic information they need to know to get into heaven when they die. That's what we've turned it into. Now, it's true. We are all part of this great mission of seeking souls. But there's something even more powerful when you understand the people to which Jesus was speaking, and it's often lost. Who were they? What did they do for a living? They were fishermen. This is a play on words. Jesus is saying, you fishermen, you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Of course, it wasn't in English, I acknowledge that. But the play on words was still there in what Jesus was saying. So here is a deeper personal meaning to this call. Yeah, he wants you to come follow him, but you're still you. All that you are, who you are, what you're gifted to do, How he shaped you, how he made you, your uniqueness, all of your experiences, good and bad, all the wisdom that you've gained by both your failures and your successes, all of that God made and he loves. They were still fishermen, they would go back to their nets someday. But in the course of continuing to be who they were, they became also who they could never have been without Jesus. They were transformed, but it's you that he wants. It's you that he made. It's you that he loves. It's you that he, he gifted and has prepared for the moment when you say, I will follow When you do as they did, as it says how they responded, they immediately left their nets and followed him. At once, they left their nets and followed him into a journey of discovery and transformation. This is who we want to be as a church. This is what we want to be and welcome. I want to tell you, as a pastor... You will need to stop letting me lead this church when I stop growing on my own journey. I need to be in this journey with you. We are all, I I call every spiritual leader in this church, all of our staff, we are all growing in this together. We're on journey following Jesus, letting Him lead the way, and being changed. Being changed. That's a beautiful thing to think about, isn't it?